Uh, so my sense is that we are still standing, but unfortunately the uh, angle of decline at the moment is uh, is pretty steep. I think, and I've said this uh, uh, repeatedly, that we're in the last chance saloon if we're going to be able to pull the uh, uh, so-called iron out of the fire. Hello again and welcome. I'm Peter Bruce and this is the third edition of Podcast from the Edge, my leap into spoken journalism or podcasts which I give into my great fear, which is that I don't really know what's going on. And then worse, in public, I ask people who do know what's going on to answer some spectacularly stupid questions. Some would say it's a karma. People think about written journalism, be it investigative, descriptive, comment or critique, is that the reader can't see what's on the cutting floor or in the notebook. There's no time for such niceties here. The conversation you're about to hear will be cleaned up briefly for the odd cough or poor phone line, but that's it. But stick with me, please. I've got a lot of, I have a lot of questions to ask a lot of people over the next few years, and I've always been amazed at how generous experts often are with their time. Today's guest is special. I haven't always been kind to him, but he in turn has always been kind to me, a real gentleman. I first met Martin Kingston I think back in 1992, when he was an investment banker, or what they then called, I think, Martin, a merchant banker, for what was, was it Klein Mort Benson? Morgan um, Grenfell, Peter. Morgan Grenfell. <laughs> um, a friend and I were trying to raise money to buy radio licenses in the New South Africa, and he very politely turned us down. But he and I ended up arriving back in South Africa at more or less the same time. I came back to edit newspapers. Martin came back to run NM Rothschild's South Africa business. And since then, he's become very a part of a very small group of businessmen who can literally call into any level of government almost any time he needs to. It's now a long time since those heady days of the Mandela presidency, Martin, and then when almost anything seemed to be possible. Nowadays, almost nothing seems to be possible. But during lockdown, you and a group of business leaders set up Business for South Africa and did a truly enormous amount of work on figuring out how to get the economy back on track after COVID. It's still with us, but your work was on the table when the social partners hammered out a deal that President Saul Ramaphosa then took to cabinet and announced as his reconstruction and recovery plan just before Tito Mbaweni's mini-budget at the end of last month. So, Martin, we've just been downgraded again by two leading agencies, making our debts even more expensive to pay off. Can we get it out of the hole? And if so, how do we do so? Well, Peter, that's a, that's a long uh, question uh, to answer, in fact, that, uh, that you posed. Uh, and I remember those heady days, and indeed I remember you visiting me in the Morgan Grenfell offices uh, in the early 1990s, and none of us would have anticipated then uh, the achievements uh, that we've seen as a country, but also uh, not only the highs but the lows as well, and I believe that we've experienced some very serious lows over the past uh, 12 years or so. And I, I say that because I believe it's the backdrop really to this conversation, which is that uh, when we uh, found ourselves confronted by the pandemic, uh, we were already in a recession. Uh, yeah. A few people had anything other than uh, a very conservative view of the economic outlook of the country. There were high levels of frustration, irritation and concern, not just, I have to say, amongst uh, uh, journalists and uh, and commentators, but I would have to say uh, many stakeholders, including in particular the business community, we had staved off a downgrade uh, 
for for some time. Uh, but of course, then we go were downgraded at a sub investment grade. Uh, and the uh, cherry on the cake, or there was no cherry on the cake, of course, uh, was uh, uh, the arrival of COVID-19 on our shore, yeah. uh, which has had a catastrophic impact, not just, I have to say, on the economy, uh, but I would say on the social fabric uh, of the country. And, and so your, 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 your response as a business leader uh, was, to, was to hear President Ramaphosa call for, a, you know, call this an opportunity for renewal. It was, I was amazed at how quickly um, both he and ministers uh, pounced on COVID as an opportunity to completely try to, or to try to completely reshape the economy, to bend it in ways that it had never been bent before. And you um, and other business organizations, you were at Brusa and uh, you, but you led and put in, I know you put in an enormous amount of time because some of it was happening around me, um, into a business response to COVID, which covered so much, so much ground and, and made so many wise recommendations. It was, you were part of a, of a, of a bigger thing then, business for, for a lockdown as it was, hurting as it was, was really working hard to try and look for a way out for the country. Yeah, that is, of course, I believe, sort of uh, backdrop to the reconstruction and recovery plan that I know we're going to talk about. Uh, when uh, we knew that uh, we were going to see uh, the pandemic uh, come to South Africa at the beginning of uh, March, uh, Business Unity South Africa decided that we needed to intervene proactively. Uh, we formed Business for South Africa, as you said, a virtual platform, not just for the member organizations of BUSA, but also the BBC and any other business that could make a contribution. And it coincided, it happened uh, less than two weeks before uh, lockdown. Uh, we actually counseled for a hard lockdown because we felt that it needed uh, to give us the breathing space we required to prepare our defenses, both our health defenses and broadly the country uh, more generally. And I'll talk about that if you want a little bit yeah. later on. But most importantly, uh, what we did was that we were able to galvanize and mobilize an extraordinary level of patriotic support from the business community, large and small, domestic, international, established and emerging to put their shoulders to the wheel on a pro bono basis in three areas. Uh, one was uh, on the healthcare platform uh, that was led by Stavros Nikolaou. So all the PPE that was brought into the country in the early days was brought in uh, by Business for South Africa, working particularly, but not only uh, with organizations like the Solidarity Fund. The second was the labor market platform led by uh, Rob Lee that worked on interventions uh, such as UIF uh, TERS, uh, COVID UIF TERS, which, by the way, has paid out over 50 billion rand uh, during the pandemic. So I think uh, be important. And the third, as you've mentioned, was the economic intervention group uh, that I led. And in that period of time, uh, we managed to assemble some 250 people working on the economic plan uh, who designed a short, medium and long term strategy for the country, which we tabled, in fact, on the 2nd of July uh, okay. to the president. Uh, and the economic cluster of ministers, as well as the NEDLAC partners, setting out what we thought as business was necessary. And that came out of a conversation that we'd had with the president uh, and his executive about the fact that it was not going to be possible to achieve uh, what was required uh, to avert a complete economic meltdown, if you like, uh, if we didn't have all the social partners working together and the business had a very 
serious contribution to make, but that it needed to be tangible outputs, that we needed to take the hard decisions that we had avoided in the past. We needed to prioritize, uh, particularly in the context of a highly fiscally constrained environment. And, and I don't believe that we minced our words. I think that we respected the authority and the role of government, uh, but we were very clear about the steps that we believed as business needed to be taken if we were going to be able to change the trajectory uh, of uh, economic growth or to economic growth uh, in the short term, recognizing uh, that we're in for a long and hard slog, whether we take the uh, decisions or not. Uh, even if we do, it's going to take us some three years to return to a pre-COVID level of real GDP and levels of, uh, uh, levels of employment. Uh, and that's uh, a very optimistic outlook, assuming we take all the right decisions and we mobilize all the requisite resources. I, I was going. I mean, Cyril Ramaphosa would have um, would have liked hearing from you that you thought that this uh, plan needed to be, uh, or the recovery needed to be, a joint effort between all the social partners. He he's a compactor uh, by nature, um, uh, and and I and I have in preparation for talking to you. I've read um, uh, some versions of the report that you put out. I know there's a very long version, which I, I, I haven't, but there was a sort of 40-pager or a 25-pager um, where you pretty clearly spelled out what you thought um, was required. And I'm going to quote it back at you, um, not not that I'm setting you up for any sort of recrimination or anything, but you'd call for um, immediate, rational, pragmatic cho choices that must guide our actions, and as a nation we must acknowledge our constraints. It's therefore of paramount importance that we prioritize ruthlessly and deploy our resources so as to secure the greatest impact in the shortest time. And Martin, what I wanted to ask you um, was whether when you look at, at what has happened in the ensuing months, right, your, your report has been subsumed into other work. Um, uh, or other meetings. I don't know how much. I don't think anybody did as much work as business did. Quite frankly, I haven't seen it. Um, uh, do you? Do you, are you content that you that you your work's been recognised? Do you see? Do you see your work in the president's um, recovery plan? Yeah. Well, firstly, I need to emphasise that we don't need to have. Uh, acknowledgement, but I think we do need to feel uh, that as a country we're taking the right decision. And I'd like to take you on a little bit of a journey because, as I said, we presented this. It was the result of three months' work, a number of people, uh, uh, I would say subject matter experts, applying their minds from a vast range of disciplines and capabilities uh, in the business world. On the 2nd of July, we tabled that uh, to not only the president but social partners. I mentioned social partners because uh, pretty much immediately after a NEDLAC special EXCO was called by government uh, in the middle of March, uh, we created what was called a rapid response task team at NEDLAC, uh, which was meeting almost daily uh, to intervene in a whole host of areas uh, to try and combat the pandemic. And it's important because in my experience, uh, I've never witnessed such a high level uh, of uh, engagement and collaboration between labor, government, uh, civil society, and business, as we've experienced over the past six months. And that created uh, a degree of 
trust uh, and I think mutual respect, which was important. But we were ahead of the curve in the design and development of an economic recovery strategy. That's what we called it, an accelerated economic recovery strategy. Uh, and it took uh, an extensive amount of engagement with government uh, and labor as well as uh, community uh, to incorporate very significant aspects of that into the NEDLAC Economic Recovery Action Plan. And the NEDLAC Economic Recovery Action Plan was tabled to the president on the 15th of September. So that gives you some sense of time. And we could recognize uh, all of the business interventions that you've uh, referred to in the NEDLAC Economic Recovery Action Plan with a caveat. The caveat was that we felt, and you uh, quoted it to me, uh, the need to ruthlessly prioritize, that we couldn't as a country have our cake and eat it. We'd need to make difficult uh, choices. And what we found during the NEDLAC process, of course, was that a number of additional priorities were added by social partners to the list. And we respect that because our list is not necessarily the only or the best list, uh, but it grew. In fact, it grew from our 15 interventions to 200 and then was paired back to about 40. The president on the 15th of September then took that to two processes. One was the ANC Lechotla and the other was the cabinet Lechotla. And what emerged a month later in the middle of October, a construction and recovery plan that you, you have referred to, which was initially presented and positioned as a government uh, proposition. Now, you'll be aware of the fact that subsequently there has been quite significant adjustment to that, uh, and the president has characterized it as not only the work of social partners, but requiring the support of all social partners to be able to implement, and I'm sure that we'll talk about implementation, because yeah. Achilles heel uh, in this entire uh, process. The Minister of Finance, when we got downgraded uh, on Friday, has made the self-same uh, references to the need uh, for social partners uh, to work together uh, to try and correct uh, the perceptions uh, that have created uh, the impetus towards further further downgrades. So I'm, re I'm leading you on this journey because even in the uh, reconstruction and recovery plan, we can see the vast majority of our recommendations are featuring there, but they have been subsumed into a larger tapestry, if I can put it that way. Uh, and I believe, and we as business are of the view that we now need to again pare back some of the areas of focus if as a country we're going to be able to you know, uh, pull ourselves out of the, uh, uh, the very dangerous, I would suggest, uh, chasm, not only that we uh, risk falling into, but I would say we have started falling into already. What, just give me an example of what you mean. What, what, needs, what in your view, needs pairing back? Uh, well, for example, uh, we think that, um, uh, and I would like to start from a slightly different vantage point, one of the biggest yeah. constraints that we have is, and the president has been absolutely clear about this, has been a state that has been denuded of competence, capability, and capacity uh, over the past several years. That action, that erosion of uh, uh, capability continues, and the need to shore it up uh, with resources from wherever they can be uh, sourced, assuming that it's without conflict and they come with the requisite skills and experience. Now, the reality is that when you've got both limited uh, fiscal uh, maneuverability, and I think that we've got extremely limited fiscal maneuverability, coupled with a, a lack of 
uh, skills within the state, uh, then you need to decide where you're going to focus your energy. So we would say uh, that uh, in the context of SOEs, and I may, you may come on to this in a moment, uh, that we need to focus on those SOEs that are systemically important. They need to be restructured, recapitalized. They need to have appropriate competent and capable management, independent boards, limited political uh, interference, if any, but appropriate oversight uh, by the shareholder. And the balance of them need to be put into ICU, and then we need to decide in a separate process uh, how to handle them, because they're a huge drain uh, on the fiscus. Uh, we say that uh, ESCOM cannot be restructured in the absence of an overhaul of the energy sector, the electricity supply industry, but located within the energy sector uh, more broadly. Government cannot do it on its own. We are underestimating as a country uh, the amount of skill and expertise that is required, not just domestically, but to be brought in internationally to achieve and fast track. Uh, that. There's a reluctance, uh, we believe, uh, to acknowledge some of these issues. We had agreed a social compact uh, on the ESCOM uh, restructuring, if you like, uh, before uh, before the middle of March. In other words, before uh, we went into lockdown. That social compact is now agreed, but has yet to be signed, let alone implemented by the social partners. Now, if we've got major challenges of the sort that I have just talked about, uh, then it means that we cannot cover uh, every sector. We cannot deal with the waterfront uh, we're going to have to be much more specific about where we put our shoulder uh, to the wheel. We agree with the concept of infrastructure-led growth, but it can't be every single infrastructure project. We've said repeatedly uh, that any such infrastructure uh, needs to be viable, uh, credible, and indeed implementable. It's not of harnessing private sector capital. It's actually a question of harnessing private sector skills and experience uh, to fast track that. And indeed, in the case of infrastructure, uh, we have established an extremely good uh, rapport with the infrastructure uh, office, uh, led by Dr. Ramachopa. Uh, we're beginning to second people as business into that process. It takes time. I'm not sure that we have the luxury of time because my own assessment is that uh, the sword of Damocles is in truth hanging over our head currently. So, Martin, one of the things we already know about the ANC, you've known the ANC for longer than anybody I know, really, um, is that it's incapable of making up its mind, finally, on one thing. It's incapable of prioritizing. Um, how can it be helped to deal with the fact that it can't prioritize? It simply can't. You can't have five priorities. You can have one. That's the whole point of the word priority. How does it understand, how do we get it to understand that 50, 50 projects isn't impressive? One good one, done on time, done well, is, but is impressive. Peter, unfortunately, your frustration is uh, shared and echoed not only by myself, uh, but by the business community. Uh, and uh, we have repeatedly, and we will continue to uh, exhort the leadership not only of the ANC, but of the country, to appreciate uh, that the more they dilute what limited resources we have, and I keep on emphasizing the resources are both uh, human and financial capital effectively here, uh, the less progress we're going to achieve, uh, the less credibility is going to be able to be maintained. In fact, I think that 
uh, we are no longer given the benefit of the doubt. That's self-evident by the reports of the uh, rating agencies uh, that have come out at the end of last week. Uh, but we will persevere uh, in making those observations. The second point I would make is that as business, we will only put our shoulder to the wheel uh, in those areas where we think that we can make a real difference. We're not going to spread ourselves thinner than uh, we can afford to, uh, because actually then we undermine our own credibility. And thirdly, um, sooner or later, and I fear it will be sooner, uh, the, uh, the bank account is going to run dry. And then there are going to be some very direct and real challenges that need to be addressed uh, when the government is no longer able uh, to pay for everything as it wishes to do. That is at the end of the day where the rubber is going to hit the road, uh, when they no longer have the luxury of being able to pay for everything. And I think we know uh, that day has already effectively uh, arrived, Peter. But the, if you listen to the Minister of Finance, he poo-poos the fact that the rubber has hit the road. He says, no, it hasn't hit the road. If I can't borrow money from the World Bank, I can raise it here on, on our markets. They're nice and deep. I'm not sure that that's what he said. We've participated very directly in discussions, not only with him, but with National Treasury, uh, including before and after the most recently tabled medium-term budget policy statement. Uh, frankly, the slides they put up are shocking, not because they're poor slides. They're actually very good slides, well presented, uh, but because the facts that are set out there are stark, clear, and in my opinion, uh, are incapable of being misunderstood. Now, if the executive chooses to misunderstand what the Minister of Finance is saying, uh, which is, and I've been in several meetings where he's explained this to uh, the Labour constituency, but not only the Labour constituency in there, which is, we only have so much money, we're going to have to live within our means, uh, then I think that he doesn't believe, I don't think that he has a different view to yourself and myself on this, Peter. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that one of the things that's come out of the recovery plan, and I and I think about it a lot because it bothers me, and I can't, and I, and it sounds sort of disloyal, and the person um, running the show is someone for whom I have an enormous amount of respect, but it's the it's the um, local content uh, requirements, or the sort of you know bringing back uh, manufacturing to South Africa, or what the ANC had been going on for years about beneficiating our minerals. Um, and of course, we do beneficiate a lot of what we produce here. We burn our coal. Um, uh, we have used the, the iron ore that we can produce in South Africa to uh, um, uh, to make steel up until um, ArcelorMittal became, you know, basically defunct in South Africa and still can't, and can't manage to do its job properly. But what's happening with, with, with the localization is that it's triggered a rash of quite spectacular um, uh, uh, import duties and export duties, which are making it very difficult for people downstream to get hold of product. Um, I was told the other day, and I live you know, in a little village in the Western Cape, that no, I can't replace uh, some corrugated sheets on my roof because they're not available. In South Africa, they're not available because uh, the distributors can't pay the price uh, the, of the Chinese coil that gets imported into South Africa because the duties are now too high. And AMSA, which is ArcelorMittal, formerly ISCOR, um, can't supply the market. They are they they're behind um, the curve. 
And it's just, and people are going out of business. And I wonder whether, you know, I read, I read what you said in your report about localization. And if I have to, it sounded, it sounded like to me, it sounded to me that it was the part of your plan that you were least convinced about. And I'd like to hear what you think about localization and what difference it can make to you. So what we established during the pandemic, and of course, uh, we're, you know, it is still current, but not the same level of lockdown, uh, when we uh, reduced economic activity as aggressively as we did as a country, was our inability uh, to survive uh, without importing goods and our borders were closed. Uh, so we were throttling our economy effectively before we even get to the subject uh, of uh, import taxes and duties. Uh, what equally became apparent was that there, and it's not new, was, but it was magnified or heightened, was that there is scope to increase the level of local manufacturing of particular goods and products uh, with the proviso, and we've been very clear about this as business, uh, so you're correct to have identified it within our report, that it is both uh, viable and practical uh, to implement localization projects, which can only be done not only on a sector, but on a product-by-product product basis. Now, to achieve that, uh, one needs to have a high level of cooperation and collaboration, not just between industry players, uh, mindful of competition or antitrust considerations, but also working with the state, in particular the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition, to ensure that if there are punitive uh, duties uh, or structural uh, defects that prevent us from achieving uh, those objectives, uh, they're resolved. The Minister of uh, Trade and Industry uh, is extremely passionate about this. He's spoken very publicly on the subject, as indeed has the President, and we have committed uh, as business uh, to try and set realistic targets across a swathe of sectors, but with the proviso, and I need to emphasize that, with the proviso uh, that it is uh, viable and practical. And that's a very significant proviso. So when we talk about the agro-processing uh, sector, poultry or sugar or edible oils or grains, or when we talk about the pharmaceutical sector, or indeed the health sector where we've started manufacturing PPE and even uh, indeed ventilators, uh, all basic consumer goods. In the final analysis, Peter, it's about uh, the sort of micro product, if you like. It's not clothing generally, it's a specific type of clothing or footwear or home textiles. It's about what type of stoves or fridges or consumer electronics can indeed be produced in South Africa or large scale mining equipment or construction chains. Now that's a huge amount of work. We need to manage everybody's expectations as to what can realistically be achieved uh, in the time frame concerned. Mindful of, I think, I think uh, three particular aspects, and you've touched on one already. One is that in some of these areas, we just don't have the inputs and we need, even uh, for semi-fabricated goods, we need to import some of those inputs. So we need to get our mind around that. Uh, the second is, we don't necessarily have the requisite skills. I mean, there has been, again, an erosion of the requisite skills. We've got to rebuild uh, skills and capability. And the third, uh, and I believe that this is a critical one which we must ignore at our peril, is that we can't expect the financial uh, sector uh, to advance credit 
uh, or to invest equity in propositions uh, which don't meet their criteria in terms of uh, risk-adjusted uh, risk adjusted returns, which, by the way, is not uh, accepted universally uh, by all of our social partners. But as far as we're concerned, you know, is a line in the sand, not that we won't, but that we can't uh, transgress. And we're not going to do anything that's going to undermine the integrity of our financial system. So when you put those three sets of constraints around it, it actually narrows uh, the opportunity set, but it doesn't mean that there aren't any opportunities to be pursued. It's just going to take longer and be more than we previously... To be in, to be in the metal... In, in, perhaps it's just the metals business, you know. I've got emails um, that I see uh, from companies to their, to their business uh, association from small businesses. This is not... You know, this is not Score Metals or, or, or Max Steel, uh, which is already in court with um, with the Minister of uh, Trade and Industry and Competition over over import duties. But here's one: we currently have raw material to sustain us for the upcoming week, uh, maybe, and we have been advised that the required raw material will only be rolled mid-November. But this is not a guarantee. Another one says. We're unable to complete equipment production in time, and in some cases, we've had to redesign equipment to suit the available steel sheet thickness. This is affecting our credibility with overseas clients. Due to AMSA steel shortages, we are unable to find any channels or IPEs. An IPE is a joist, basically, a steel joist. This is causing huge delays in our production. This is all in the last week. They're unable to tell us when stock will be made available again. In spite of those things, right? Now, AMSA is, you know, AMSA at one stage was on the government's Bad list. In fact, Rob Davies, as a minister at the DTI at the time, excluded steel from AMSA, uh, from AMSA being used in any government projects. Um, then a deal was done and, 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 and it was brought back into the fold. But basically, what we're doing and what, what business is kind of getting drawn into here with this localization, particularly with metals, is you are, we're going to do what we did with ESCO. We are going to raise prices in order in South Africa in order to protect what is effectively a monopoly. That's surely crazy. Oh, I agree with you. And we've said that. And by the way, it's not just localization this applies to. It's any other form of, uh, uh, let's characterize it as a structural engineering of the economy, which doesn't withstand scrutiny as being uh, viable and implementable. So I would say the same thing applies uh, to BEE. Uh, we absolutely and passionately believe that we need to see a transformation uh, of the economy, of the ownership of the economy, uh, but we need to do it in a manner uh, that actually doesn't impose an additional tax on, on an economy that uh, cannot afford it at this moment in time. So we are not going to support uh, as business, and I don't believe the country can afford to do so, uh, any interventions, including with respect to localization, uh, which are punitive uh, in the short and the medium term. Uh, we can, of course, have an ideological discussion about whether or not in the longer term. We can't get through to the longer term, Peter. We just don't have the runway uh, to do that. We need to be extremely focused on where we can actually improve economic output, uh, productivity, uh, we need to, uh, in, and, and by the way, our competitiveness, our ease of doing business, all of the issues that you have focused on yeah. have been areas that you know we have emphasized in our own economic recovery strategy, which is 
unless we can, as a country, profile ourselves as being a much more competitive investment destination. I mean, by the way, for local business as well as for international businesses. Yeah. Where we improve the ease of doing business, in particular, by the way, not for large companies, but for small and medium-sized enterprises. And any conventional economy would be the backbone of economic activity, including the payment of direct and indirect taxes and the creation of sustainable employment. Then we are to uh, find ourselves in a much more dangerous set of circumstances uh, than we are in already. So we have, I think. I'm holding a report now done for the um, for the. Uh a uh, European Union um, office in South Africa, uh, which says local content, local content requirements can lead to economic isolation with activity concentrating in sectors where local content requirements are imposed, potentially undermining industrial diversification and long-term economic growth. It's not making us very popular with people who we buy things from. And I wonder whether we have the markets to sustain the kinds of things that we might want to, that we think we want to make. You know, if if, if localizing the production of X or Y product was going to be profitable, well, why, isn't it not, why is it not being done already? Why are we going to force round pegs into square holes? I understand the need. Um, I understand the desire to see, you know, smoke coming out of South African industrial chimneys again, and it's nice and romantic. But, you know, I, I worry that we've been taken back to sort of, you know, British Labour government policies of the 1960s, you know, where ultimately you forced into not only um, uh, imposing duties, but in order to dampen the, the price increases that you then let loose in the country, you start imposing price controls on products like sugar um, or steel, which is the road to, to hell. So uh, I, fully, I fully agree with you. And an interventionist approach of the nature that you're talking about is going to be completely and totally counterproductive and will undermine any prospects that we have. And we have emphasized repeatedly to the government, and it's not just the government, because I have to say that their alliance partners uh, in the form of Labour have very similar uh, outlooks, uh, which is we can't reduce the workforce, we can't introduce the concept of productivity. We have no choice uh, but to improve productivity. You'll have seen the uh, Booser work uh, that was commissioned recently uh, on public sector uh, wages uh, and our comparative advantage or disadvantage on a global basis. It frankly uh, makes for very concerning uh, reading. Uh, we, I think we have established a, a quality of dialogue with government, in particular, but not only the economic cluster, about what is required to be able to mobilize the capital concern. The capital comes from the private sector. The capital doesn't come uh, from the public sector, and one cannot force that particular uh, capital to travel unless there's an appropriate investment environment. I think we understand that. You certainly do, uh, Peter. Whether everybody in government does remains to be seen. But one cannot oblige, you know, one cannot prescribe private sector investment anymore. I think that we're going to end up prescribing uh, assets, which I know has been much talked about by the ANC. I think we would be on a hiding to nothing domestically and internationally uh, if we were to go down that route. And the reality is that we're going to have to be able to access capital domestically, mobilize it domestically, and indeed internationally. Uh, and when you talk about the Minister of Finance uh, having no concerns about tapping the uh, local markets, uh, that may be so. I haven't heard him say that myself. But what is for sure is that the cost is going to increase uh, and, the, and, and the depth of that capital market 
is going to shrink uh, if we don't actually make sure that we pivot the economy onto a much more uh, aggressive uh, trajectory, yeah. course of inclusive growth, but one that doesn't have these types of uh, uh, strictures imposed upon it. Martin, just two very, just two very quick things before I let you go. Um, to what extent is the Department of Home Affairs a barrier or a springboard to faster economic growth? You know, we talk about skills and the lack of them, and what what a difference skills could make to the way to the speed with which we can get things done. Because often people decide on something and then look at it and say, "Well, how on earth do we build a dam?" You know, on the Umzumbubu River now that we've gazetted it, um, or whatever road or whatever project there might be. Surely, surely there's merit in considering at least a, a, a program of, uh, of a, a program to encourage people to come in and live here. Um, and this with the proviso that, you know, you can come, you can get South African citizenship, whatever it might be, all you have to do is come here and in three years create five jobs. Um, you know, this is a pretty decent place to live uh, compared to some parts of the world. And I just wonder whether that would be attractive or useful or even politically possible. So um, one of the low-hanging fruits that we were talking about previously was specialist skill visas. That's exactly in the zone uh, that we were talking about. There's absolutely no doubt that we have to uh, import uh, skilled people from abroad uh, who can uh, ramp up or shore up uh, those areas where we don't have uh, the capacity within the country. Uh, we've tabled it repeatedly uh, to the president. We've been assured of the fact the specialist skill visas are going to be fast-tracked. There is, by the way, movement taking place there, perhaps not as fast as... I don't believe that the Ministry of Home Affairs is an obstacle anymore. I think it was historically. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, when we've had an engine that's been idle for some time, uh, it's going to take longer than we would like to get it moving again. But you're absolutely correct. Uh, we need to, wherever possible, bring in... And by the way, it's not just engineering skills. It might be uh, teaching and educational skills and disciplines. Project, project management. Absolutely so. Absolutely yeah. so. And then, and then lastly, both business... Everybody does this. Everybody talks about inclusive growth uh, without ever having sort of bothering to explain what it means. And, and I think to most people... It's a kind of, you know, a rising tide um, lifts all boats kind of thing. So if we've got economic growth, everybody, it affects everybody um, uh, positively. But is there any discussion ever um, that you're part of that you can talk about? Whether, you know, does anybody look at real inclusion, measurable inclusion, where, as as the Germans were forced to do after the war by the Allies, um where the unions and business were forced to cooperate with each other uh, in what they call Mitbestimmung. So unions now sit on German supervisory boards um, uh, and know what directors know at the same time. Um, it just, it, it, what it does is to rob or to remove from the air all the toxins that we face in South Africa where rumor becomes fact and this company is going to sack extinct, you know, the thousand people when it's not true. Um, why do we not move the the inclusion conversation to something higher and more tangible? You know, the Germans, with all of that, they're still the most competitive, I think certainly one of the top three 
most competitive industrial economies in the world. And they've just recently, or about to, uh, bring into law um, a stipulation that at least one third of all boards of all companies have to be women. So actually, you must be a crystal ball gazer because that conversation is now taking place, uh, Peter. Uh, not just in terms of board representation, that's obviously a very uh, complex issue. We need to make sure not just that we navigate uh, through the corporate governance aspects, but we mitigate any conflict. But unless and until we have the clarity, the transparency, the broader accountability that you're talking about, levels of mistrust will continue to undermine our ability to make progress. And we need to have an appropriate compact between business and labor, and we understand that. But that requires both sides, and I would have to say government as a regulator, uh, to acknowledge that what was you know, appropriate uh, in the past, if it was, is not fit for purpose uh, for the future. So, for example, when I mention uh, productivity, uh, when I talk about wage restraint, wage restraint doesn't just apply to the public sector, it applies to the private sector as well. We cannot be having a conversation about SABC when it doesn't have the financial wherewithal uh, without recognizing it's going to have to trim its costs. There is no ability to recapitalize SABC. And if there was, there shouldn't be because there are more deserving cases. That means that they need to live within their means. It doesn't necessarily mean that they need to retrench their workforce. It may mean they need to pay their existing workforce less. We cannot have a situation where the unions are uh, threatening to go on strike because they want a pay increase when there is not the financial wherewithal to support that. But by the same token, business needs to be I think, much more open-minded, exactly as you have suggested, uh, about a form of cooperation and collaboration, uh, indeed with organized labor, because that's the only way that we're going to achieve the inclusive growth uh, that we all aspire to. Inclusive growth, uh, which, by the way, is going to take much longer to become a reality uh, than we would like. And I suppose the final point I would make uh, and again, you touched on this uh, at the beginning of your question or your comment, is we need to be able to measure this. There need to be measurable outcomes, and we need to hold people to account accordingly. I believe as a country we fail on both counts, but it's actually not beyond the wit of man uh, to put in procedures that enable us to do both. Martin, very last question. Are we, are we we're still standing? Um, um, do we, do we, do we, do we get through this? Uh, so my sense is that we are still standing, but unfortunately the uh, angle of decline at the moment is uh, is pretty steep. I think, and I've said this uh, uh, repeatedly, that we're in the last chance saloon if we're going to be able to pull the uh, uh, so-called iron out of the fire. Uh, and uh, to do that, we're going to have to work collaboratively and we're going to have to work urgently. Uh, and as you uh, indicated previously, we're going to have to prioritize we're going to have to decide which choices uh, we're going to have to uh, uh, make, and we're going to have to motivate why we've done that, rather than wanting as a country to have our cake and eat it. If we manage to round that corner, then I'm pretty confident. If not, then I believe that the outlook for the next few years is going to be very bleak and is going to undermine the stability of society. Well, we can't afford to go down that route. Uh, so we have to uh, focus on the, uh, on, on the former approach, Peter. Martin Kingston, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate talking to you. You've got such wisdom, such insight. It's, um, it's a privilege to have had you. Many thanks for, for being with us. 
Thanks very much, Peter. Very nice to speak to you. Thank you very much for joining me once again, and I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Martin Kingston. This podcast is available on all uh, your podcast platforms on Apple, Google, Spotify, Iono FM, uh, Pocket Cast. Um, I don't really even know what all of those are, but I know that I am really enjoying talking to people and, and, and in the knowledge, hopefully, that you are listening or going to listen to what we've had to say. I'm trying to pick interesting people. I'm trying to um, focus on the things that I'm not confident to talk about so that I learn as I go along. Please join me every week while I do this. Uh, there's no end to the amount of people I want to talk to. Uh, and there's no end to the amount of information and entertainment I want to bring to you. Thank you for joining me. See you next week. Bye.